Welcome to episode 236 of Troubadours and Rakan Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's program, we have as our featured guest one of the best essayists in the United States of America, many people believe, including myself. His name is Timothy Kreider, and he writes for The New Yorker, for The New York Times, uh, Al Jazeera, The Week. He has many cartoons to his credit as well. He's also a pretty well-respected cartoonist. His uh, efforts are called, they come under the moniker, The Pain, When Will It End? And more recently, he has written two books of essays. One published several years back, titled We Learn Nothing. And a new one that's in the publisher's hands right now, Simon & Schuster, have it. He just handed it off to them. And it's titled, I Wrote This Book Because I Love You, due out Valentine's Day. We have a wonderful conversation about his work, his life, and he shares an excerpt from the new book of essays as well. Timothy Kreider today on the program. We also have... Another wonderfully crafted, beautifully read essay by our associate producer and resident essayist, Dr. Michael Pavis, titled Sylvia's Cuisine. We have an EW essay by yours truly titled The Maze and a poem titled Elegant. And this, as is always the case, will be complemented and infused with several great tunes. Let's get to it. Episode 236 of Troubadours and Raconteurs. Penso che un sogno così non ritorni mai più. Mi dipingevo le mani e la faccia di blu. Poi d'improvviso venivo dal vento rapito e incominciavo a volare nel cielo infinito. Felice di stare lassù E volavo, volavo felice Più in alto del sole ed ancora più su Mentre il mondo pian piano spariva lontano laggiù Una musica dolce suonava soltanto per me Felice di stare lassù, 
ma tutti i sogni nell'alba svaniscono perché quando tramonta la luna li porta con sé ma io continuo a sognare negli occhi tuoi belli che sono blu come un cielo tra punto di stelle quintessential lazy Sunday afternoons in the ballast of past recollections as virtuous as those old U.S. societal tropes regarding the octoroon, and we yet still dance in our bedroom slippers at every chance we have to hear and ubiquitously cheer for the newest pejorative stance of romance with simpleton hate by our commander-in-thief, Donald Ronald Jesus Paul, and the rest of the gang, prostrate in the polished long company halls, into the concocted metaphysical space and time continuum, as if a wall could even touch it, this life's real human struggle. The wayward trance, though, as the adolescent dreams of love, strength, guarantees, protection, and reward continue to fuel and push each of us forward within the maze of a backward and inside-out empty mass culture, obliterating the unique breath and synapse of our human potential in exchange for orgasm and security. What of it? Where to go now? And brothers, sisters, why and how? This river of Rome It don't flow like it used to 
it's more of a home than anywhere that I've written it to. And we used to dream together, but now I dream. From the bottle to the tumbler is the only journey left I know. Writer. Speaking. How are you? This is E.W. Conundrum from Troubadours and Rock on Tours. Nice to have you on the show. E.W., good to hear from you. I'm trying to remember if we've ever actually spoken before. Oh, yeah, we have. We have some mutual friends. Yeah. Okay. 
way back. Uh, so we've met. Yeah, we've met. Yeah. Oh, all right. Of course we have. Yeah. But it was a while back. It was a while back. Yeah. Um, I think I even was uh, lucky enough to, to publish one of your early pieces. Oh, well, that I remember. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We've spoken at um, Billy's. Um, okay. And you made Bloody Marys the next morning. Oh, good for me. <laughs> yeah, it was wonderful. So, uh, um, yeah, yeah, the story I did not forget. You don't forget the first few people who've published anything you write when you're young. Well, I appreciate that. It was my good fortune. And before we get started, I know, you know, a lot of people do know who you are and because uh, I've mentioned that I was having you on the program to a couple of folks and they were excited about it. But let, for those who do not, let me share a little background if you don't mind. Sure. Tim Kreider is an essayist and cartoonist. He has a book that's been published by Simon & Schuster titled We Learn Nothing, and a wonderful book, by the way. He has one that right now, he's, uh, this week you, you were telling me earlier that uh, you were uh, embarking on the final edit, and uh, you've also contributed to the New York Times, the New Yorker's Page Turner blog, Al Jazeera, The Men's Journal, Nerve.com, The Comics Journal, and Film Quarterly. His cartoons have been collected in three books by Fantagraphics, and his cartoon, The Pain, When Will It End?, ran for 12 years in the Baltimore City paper and other alternative weeklies, and is archived at thepaincomics.com. Tim was born and educated in Baltimore, Maryland. He lives in New York City and an undisclosed location on the Chesapeake Bay. He had the same cat for 19 years. And the new book, <laughs> the new book is titled "I Wrote This Book Because I Love You." Correct? That is correct. And yes, I just handed the manuscript all marked up in red ink yesterday. That's exciting. Uh, people always say that, and it's seldom true. But in this case, yes, I think we could go ahead and call it exciting. <laughs> um, uh, at least for me, it's a relief to be done with. The, the thing I've been working on for the last four years. Four years. Just lying around being a blobhead today. Yeah. Well, five, if you count the crucial first year spent doing nothing except um, feeling anxious and guilty. <laughs> anxious and guilty about? Uh, not working on it. Not working on it. You, you had the idea, and you just didn't? Uh... Uh, kind of. But, yeah. you know, that's just the first phase of any artistic project is avoiding it and, and um, feeling dreadful. Well, let's go back a little bit to, to your um, very well-received, I guess you could say it's a cult favorite, the cartoon, I don't know what to refer to, is it a strip, is it a, I'm not sure. I'm. Yeah, able. actually, I was just wondering that. It's not really a strip, it was usually a one panel, um, but yeah, you can call it a strip or a comic, cartoon. The, the pain, when will it end? Yes. Yeah, and... and uh, uh, that that's done or are you still working on that no that uh ceased i think in 2009 i got sort of waylaid into being a cartoonist for more than a decade um i was just doing that as sort of a i don't know a a time killing thing while unsuccessfully trying to be a writer i published a few mini comics back in 
you know, the 90s when there were many comics and the local alternative weekly picked it up. And uh, so then I was like, all right, I guess I'm a cartoonist. And so I did that for 12 years. Um, but I, I kind of got conscripted into being a political cartoonist during the second uh, Bush presidency and then felt pretty burned out by the time that was over and had to quit. And I guess your writing was, was uh, getting more um, attention at that point, or did you have a gap? Well, I had, um, you know, it's funny, and I, I had mistakenly remembered that I quit cartooning because I had started getting published. Um, but that's really not true. It turns out that I quit cartooning when I, when I went back and reexamined the chronology, I guess I just quit cartooning with no idea at all what I might possibly do next. Um, in retrospect, I can't imagine what I was thinking, but, um, I guess that freed up the creative energy for me to devote more attention to writing. I, I don't know what happened. Um, but I started getting published in the New York times shortly after that. And that turns out to be a good place to get published people read it and i got an agent shortly after that and then a book deal it all happened uh very fast and the book deal you're you're talking about is uh, for the book of essays we learn nothing yeah that was the first um i mean i started writing more and more in my books of cartoons i, I did what i used to call artist statements to accompany the cartoons that got more and more suspiciously essay like as time went on and then finally i just you know came out of the closet as an essayist, I guess. Um, and yes, We Learn Nothing was the first book of essays that I published with Simon & Schuster. I mean, to me, you're obviously an artist. You know, your perspective on, on what, uh, you know, makes us tick. I mean, you've also been called a philosopher, a psychologist. Uh, you've also been invited to speak at religious institutions, from what I understand. Uh, so you have yeah, a little bit of it all. I get to mouth off about a lot of things I'm not qualified to speak about. <laughs> and um, Well, that's why it's, I mean, I'm a, I'm a lazy, undisciplined person. So I prefer just to um, sort of mouth off in an uninformed way about, you know, various topics that preoccupy me rather than commit to, say, a disciplined course of study for four years and get to call myself a philosopher or a psychologist. Well, when when you look at what you focus on, uh, the pain, when will it end? We learn nothing. Mm -hmm. And I wrote this book, Because I Love You, which I understand has to do with relationships, uh, romantic yeah, relationships. Yeah, that's right. The, these are, you know, eternal human struggles, and uh, I guess you're addressing them, you're communicating about them in a way that resonates. Uh, how is that so? How's that happening? I mean, are you shocked by that? Um, it's... You mean that it resonates with people? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I always tell, I, I teach writing now um, at a college level, and it's a frequent mistake of young writers to choose whatever is the most sensational or traumatic thing that ever happened to them to write about. Um, and I always have to sort of more or less uh, gently disabuse them of the notion that they are special or fascinating. Um, but it comes with the consolation prize that your, your ordinariness is what can make you a good writer. I mean, I, I basically am banking on the assumption that whatever is true is, of me is probably more or less universally true, that I'm not some 
pathological or extraordinary person. Um, so I don't know what I found is that like the deeper you dig and the more, um, secret thought or, or unattractive emotion you own up to in print, the more you hear from people saying things like, Oh my God, I can't believe you said that. I, I thought it was just me. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's great. That's great when you can give voice uh, to, to someone's thoughts. When most of us do think we're weirdos, you know, and, and well, maybe at least there's another one. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know. I might, in, all I can say is that that gamble has generally paid off. Um, it, you know, I, I hear from readers who say things like, um, you know, you, you sort of said what, I, what I've always thought. Um, or I, I, I knew that, I just didn't know how to articulate it. Now, let me ask you about We Learned Nothing. I, I remember reading the book of essays when it first came out. Uh, actually, our associate producer who arranged our conversation, Dr. Michael Pavis, he bought it for me as a gift. Uh, both of oh. us, yeah, we've been reading uh, your essays and, and following the, the, uh, the, we'll call it the strip for, for a number of years. And, and when the book came out, he bought it for me for, for Christmas, and um, I, I, I loved it. And I gave it to a friend uh, to take back with him when he came to visit me uh, one, one weekend, and he loved it. I'm wondering, I mean, it seems family and friendships and, and uh, thing, you know, developing as an individual through relationships with, with close, you know, people that were close to you was part of what, I, you know, I, I saw as, a, as a, a thread through that book. Is that accurate? Sure. I mean, what else is there to write about but other people? And, and uh, <laughs> I mean, I sometimes worry that, you know, this next book is all about relationships, and I sometimes fret that that's a trivial thing to be writing about um, in an era as politically dark as this one. But there's another way in which it's the only thing there is. It's, it's the most vital thing always is relationships with other people. That's, that's what's going to matter when your life is over. That's what you'll look back on probably. Um, you know, it's funny remembering that, that, that story of mine that you published many, many years ago, I remember was like a, uh, science fiction story about a little kid living on a colony on Triton, the moon of Neptune. And, um, it was a weird story and that it didn't really have any people in it. It was like a little kid who, um, really liked the moon Triton and, and the nitrogen geysers. And <laughs> he was like, in, in retrospect, kind of a, an odd autistic little kid as a character. Um, but eventually, I guess I succeeded in becoming interested in my fellow human beings. Because um, that's mostly what I, I write about now is my friends and uh, family and girlfriends. I mean, those are the most important things in my life are my friends. Now you're uh, you and I are about the same age. I'm fifty. I th you're probably yeah. I'm fifty. You're fifty. Welcome. Um, and yeah, thanks. <laughs> yeah, I, I just I just about an hour ago scheduled a colonoscopy, you know, for October. So that's oh, that's, good time. Yeah, <laughs> that's what happens when you hit fifty. I think. Um, At least you got health insurance. Right. You're right. I'm fortunate in that regard. Now, when when you um, were writing, we learned nothing. Did you learn anything? You know, from the the reflection that took place and in, in writing down your memories and thoughts and such. <laughs> uh, good question. I feel like the stuff you learn in life is never really a, a a pat lesson that you can articulate in the form of an aphorism or anything. Uh, 
and usually you have to learn it over and over again about a hundred times before it really sticks. I, I guess what I would say is that writing about people changes your relationship with them uh, because it's necessary to get a certain kind of dispassionate clinical distance from people when you write about them. And so you, you need to be careful about writing about people you still have active, intimate relationships with. Um, but it's a good way of getting perspective on relationships that are no longer really live. Um, you know, people who are either literally dead or just have, have gone from your life. It's a way of uh, getting outside them, getting past them. And in some cases, I found I was able, just through the editing process, really just in, in the process of trying to write a better essay, I sort of accidentally had to impersonate or maybe even make myself be a better person. You know, I wrote an, uh, uh, an essay about um, an uncle of mine who was mentally ill and also just not a nice man. He's a very dangerous, crazy guy um, and always was this sort of shadowy peripheral figure in our family. And uh, my original ending to that essay was a very dark one um, and unforgiving, uh, you know, not really blaming him, but being glad that he was gone. Um, and in the process of revising it and with advice from friends and editors, I was able to make it a more generous hearted piece, which I don't feel like is falsifying things to give it a happy ending or make me seem like a nicer guy. I think it's a process of struggling your way through judgment to understanding. And maybe that's the arc of a lot of those essays. Nice. I, 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 don't, I don't think of moral judgment as a real interesting or useful way to approach people or life. No. No, I think it puts people off, probably. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, now, do, do you really believe we learn nothing? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> uh, I mean, being, being fatalistic... Uh, and rueful that way is funnier than being uh, optimistic. Um, I, I would say it took me maybe longer than a lot of people to learn anything. Um, I mean, I feel like at age 50, I'm just barely a dateable boyfriend now. <laughs> yeah, me too. I get for the first time in my life. <laughs> um, I'm doing okay, you know, but, but this is absolutely the earliest in life that I was able to, to manage that feat. Uh, yeah, maybe we learn something once in a while. It's very seldom anything helpful. I mean, one of the few things I can think of that I've learned is how little we're really able to help other people. Yeah, I'm, I'm coming to understand that, too. Really. Um, you know, I, I wrote an essay in that book, and we learned nothing about a, a friend of mine who told a lot of, uh, well, either stories or lies, depending on how, <laughs> how judgmental you choose to be, and also hoarded a lot of secrets really basic facts about himself. We, we just didn't know, even though we were his good friends. And uh, he's dead now. And in retrospect, it's easy to wish that you could have done more to help the guy, but he wouldn't have let us. I mean, it's not really a realistic wish. Um, there, there are people who just hide themselves away, and one reason they do it is to prevent you from helping them. Yeah. Is because they don't think they deserve it, or they, they couldn't bear the cost of it. Yeah. Um, so... Yeah. It's, it's not an especially happy thing to have learned, but um, I guess it 
you know, it, it doesn't it doesn't make for really cheerful advice giving. But, you know, sometimes when younger friends of mine are worried about their friends, I'm able to offer them a little perspective like, well, here's what you can do and here's what you can't. Well, we should mention though, the, the book, the essays are very funny. I mean, they're poignant. I found them to be poignant and uh, good. Very thanks. Funny. They're supposed to be. Yeah. So I don't for, for those who haven't picked it up yet. I don't want them to think, oh, it's just depressing. Uh, sort of. Fade no, away. they're supposed to be funny. Yeah, um, they're great. I mean, I was a funny cartoonist. I mean, I guess that sounds vain to say, but you know, that's one of the few things I was good at is being funny and drawing funny pictures. And I got to be really good at that over 12 years. Uh, so I felt pretty confident and self-assured about that. But then when you go out on a limb and try to write something, that's also poignant, you know, you risk looking really sappy or stupid. Um, and that wasn't something I was sure I did know how to do. So that was much scarier to me than trying to be funny. Yeah. You could probably see more quickly and, and more, you know, whether or not a cartoon works uh, as compared to an essay. Yeah. They're a lot more fun to draw. I mean, they're just funner to do. Uh, drawing is more fun than writing. And yeah, a, cart a cartoon, you can more or less step back and look at at the end of the day and tell whether it's done and tell whether it's good. Whereas essays, who knows? I mean, I, I just couldn't even tell you if this last book I just finished is any good. All I know is that it is done. Yeah, well, we're going to get to that in a minute. I want, I want to just tell you, though, you were talking about your cartoons and, and how they're, they're funny. I remember when uh, Ronald Reagan passed away. And oh, yes. the adulation that was all over the media was making me sick. I couldn't, because I, I think he's, you know, deplorable. Uh, and I went to the Pain Will, When Will It End website, and you had that cartoon. You know what I'm talking about there when you're driving. I, a, I do. Yeah, spike through his heart, basically saying we must be sure. And I laughed. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> for a, good, for a right. good minute, for a good minute, I, I had a belly laugh going, and I was so appreciative. It meant a lot. Well, thanks. I mean, those are the nicest compliments I got about my political work over those years, is people telling me that they, it, it reminded them that they weren't the crazy ones, that it, that it wasn't just them. It was, it was the rest of the world. Well, maybe you should uh, come out of retirement with the cartoons for Trump. It seems you'd be able to have a lot of fun. Oh, I would find that so fatiguing and demoralizing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm glad I'm not a political satirist now. I don't I don't really know what I would do. I mean, um, that show Veep, which is quite funny, is going off the air, and it's been on for seven years. So maybe it's just reached the end of its run. But I also got to think that they feel like that kind of political satire just isn't viable anymore. I mean, because of know, reality? Real, life, real yeah. life is so much more grotesque and strange loving than, than that show. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I agree. So uh, one of my students actually told me about a form of satire that became prevalent in the late uh, communist era, uh, which consisted of simply repeating verbatim the rhetoric of political leaders with a totally straight face and everyone understood that it was parody but it was totally impervious to prosecution um you know because they were just parroting exactly what their leaders said and at this point i feel like that's that's the best a satirist could could do yeah i th i saw something exactly like that uh, a month ago or so bill maher you know real time he had uh, an obama mm -hmm. impersonator on 
saying things that Donald Trump has actually said, just to see how we would react if Obama had said the same thing. Yeah, things. right. Oh, yeah. that's that's clever. That's nice. Yeah, it was very funny. Um, you've probably heard Mark Hamill, who is, is, is a voice actor now, and does the voice of the Joker on the anima- animated Batman show. He reads Donald Trump's tweets in the voice of the Joker. <laughs> Um, and it's actually impossible to believe that the Joker didn't say them. <laughs> they sound so exactly like something some mad supervillain would say. <laughs> That's excellent. I have to check that out. Uh, so let's get to your book, though. I want to give you an opportunity to talk a little bit about the new book. Um, I wrote sure. this book because I love you. Now, mm-hmm. you want to share a little bit of, of you know why and what for? Uh, you mean, why did I write this book? Yeah. And, and well, you know, it's a, it's a little bit like second album syndrome. You write a first collection of essays and you basically use up all your best life's material. And then you've got just as long as it took to write the first book, like maybe four years to write the second one. Um, and then what do you write about? So, uh, I really had no choice, but to go deeper into even more intimate, Stuff because I'm I'm no good at making things up. I, I'm pretty much just stuck with the material of my own life, and uh, I don't know. It was also something that was very much on my mind at that time in my life. And you know, to, to belatedly answer your question about learning something, I do feel like writing this book. I, I couldn't like tell you a lesson I learned from this book, but I do feel like um, it changed me somehow. Uh, I worked through some stuff. I don't know. I don't think it's a coincidence that I'm in a, a decent relationship now. You think the book helped? Um, writing the book helped? Yeah. I, I mean, writing this book was a very unenjoyable experience. It, it basically just involved sitting around thinking unpleasant thoughts about myself for four years. Um, and Doesn't everybody you know, do that? I, I, doesn't, doesn't. <laughs> Maybe they do and they just don't get a book out of it. <laughs> Um, it was, just, but it was my job, you know, these other people have some damn job that they're supposed to be concentrating <laughs> on instead, but that was, that was what I was supposed to be doing. Uh, and so I avoided it with all sorts of massive secret time wasting projects, but somehow I came out the other end of it having, I, I don't know, having, um, I don't know if it would, it's not really accurate to say figured some stuff out. It doesn't really work that way, but got, got past some stuff. Um, I didn't want it to be a trivial book. And so I tried to make each of the essays about something besides just relationships. Uh, Like one of them is about falling in love with a friend while we were protesting the invasion of Iraq. Um, And it's about, well, I don't know. You tell me what it's about. It's, but it, but it has to do with the kind of energy that informed both that love affair and those protests. You're going to share, um, I'm sorry. You're going to share a bit of it? Is that what I anticipated? Oh, um, I could. I was actually thinking I might read you the introduction to another essay. Which sure, is whatever you like. Similar in that it's, you know, it's a very personal essay, but also hopefully universal. It's about a famous experiment in child psychology, um, which I was a subject of when I was an infant. Um, and and the, the experiment was actually called The Strange Situation. Um, so, you know, this is an essay about me and my boring personal problems, but it's also about everybody's boring personal problems. Um, you, you want me to read a bit of it? Sure. I'd love it. How much time 
do we have? I could read like, you know, three, four minutes. Is that too much? Three minutes, four minutes is fine. You go for it. Is it okay. Do what you feel. Uh, well, this is the very beginning, and it's written in the form of a scientific paper. So this is the abstract section. The Strange Situation. My mother likes to tell a story about the time she volunteered me for a psychological study as an infant. The psychologists at Johns Hopkins University laughed because you played with all their toys, she wrote in my baby book, two and three at a time, so they couldn't write down that you preferred any. Mom, being a mom, thought of this anecdote as evidence of my precocious curiosity and creativity. I, as an adult, sometimes thought of it as a sort of predictor of or metaphor for my romantic life. I wasn't about to commit to any one thing when there were so many tantalizing options available. I wanted to sample everything, have as much fun as possible, play with all the toys. I'd just broken up with the first girlfriend I'd be willing to call a girlfriend in years, and had finally decided that I might have what psychologists call attachment issues. I was reading a book about the history of attachment theory when I came across a description of a famous experiment conducted in the late 60s, Mary Ainsworth's strange situation, that included the detail, at one end of the room was a child's chair heaped with and surrounded by toys. When I mentioned this to my mother, she said, Ainsworth, that was the name of the researcher. When therapists or social workers learn that I was one of the original subjects of the strange situation, they react in the way that a more general audience might if they were to learn I'd played one of the kids in the Goonies. The strange situation is still the most widely used lab setup in developmental psychology. The subject of the study was not, as it turns out, toy preference. What the researchers were observing were my reactions to my mother, what I did when she left the room, when she returned, when a stranger entered. Mom tells me I didn't cry when she left, and when she came back, I started to crawl toward her, but got distracted by a toy. This is now the standard method of evaluating the attachment bond between infants and mothers, the way IQ tests are used to measure intelligence. It classifies infants into three distinct attachment patterns, which have proven to be disturbingly stable in longitudinal studies, meaning that most of us are still classified in the same way we would have been in infancy e.g., an infant who acts unconcerned when his mother leaves and ignores her when she returns might, as an adult, be reluctant to call the woman he's dating a girlfriend or subtly maneuver her into leaving him. This probably ought not to come as shocking news to those of us reared in the post-Freudian world, but it's still disquieting to see it borne out by hard data or in your own life. I had told my friends that if this most recent relationship didn't work out, it might be time to admit that I didn't really want to be in a relationship at all. At age 47, I'd never so much as lived with a woman, let alone been married. Summer was undeniably over. I now found myself living in an increasingly chilly vacation cabin with my partner in what had been by far the longest term relationship of my life, a 19-year-old cat who was succumbing to senility and kidney failure. We've all arrived at those moments of reckoning when we look up from our lives and ask, why am I this person I would rather not be? Where exactly did things go wrong? How did I end up alone in this cabin with a demented and incontinent cat? Somewhere in an old cardboard box or metal filing cabinet or on a piece of microfilm is a record of my attachment classification at 11 months, like a snapshot of the primordial universe. So that gray autumn, as I tended my senescent cat, I undertook a research project of my own to track down the specific study in which I'd been a subject and find the raw data on myself from 1968. I don't know how much the past can tell you about yourself or whether such understanding is of much use in trying to change, but it's become evident to me in midlife that my own history of intimate relationships 
not wanting to choose, trying everything, never settling, may not have been the kind of experiment I thought it was either. Its true subject may not have been all the alluring playthings I found so diverting, but the thing that wasn't there, that I was pretending, I didn't even miss. So, that's what we got going. I love um, That essay is all about my efforts to research the clinical data on my infant self with the aid of an ex-girlfriend science reporter while tending to the decline and death of my 19-year-old cat. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And this is in the new book. I wrote this book because I love you. Because I love you. By Tim yeah. Kreider. And when will that be out and available? Is it out yet? Uh, well, it comes no. out aptly on Valentine's Day Perfect. of 2018. Perfect. I was thinking that earlier before I called. I said, man, this would be a good book for Valentine's Day. So it's at the... It's just, the perfect Valentine's Day job. Perfect. <laughs> and um, just to wrap it up again, ladies and gentlemen, we're talking to... One of the best essayists we have in the country, a lot of folks believe, uh, compared to David Sedaris, uh, uh, David Foster Wallace. Actually, he was a fan of your humor, too, from what I understand. Um, he was a fan of my cartoons, that's true. Yeah. I, I mean, you're, you've really developed into uh, 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 an amazingly talent. Well, you always had the talent, but your talent has, has uh, as I said earlier, resonated. I'm very happy to, to have you on the program, very very proud to to know you in a small way. A couple of uh, times we crossed paths. Well, EW, that's very kind of you to say. And uh, like I said, you don't forget the first people who publish you when you're young. It means a lot to you. Um, I think I think probably people who win the Pulitzer remember that less fondly than they do the first unpaid thing they ever got in print. <laughs> All right. Well, when you win the Pulitzer, you know, mention my name. <laughs> Um, you can be my date to the luncheon. <laughs> I would love it. I would love it. So, uh, any any final thoughts? Any uh, insight to share with other essayists or artists or just fellow humans? Given given the state of affairs, uh, in particular here in our country. Jeez, uh, you're really putting me on the spot. I, my first impulse uh, when Trump was elected was to propose marriage to an Icelandic burlesque dancer. Um, <laughs> I was hoping to get Icelandic citizenship. Uh, I have not really been a hero of the revolution so far. Um, gee, I don't know. We're we're in need of really intelligent and, I'm afraid, uh, empathetic artists these days because polemic isn't gonna isn't gonna win the day. Um, I am unfortunately not the man for that job. So go to it, millennials. Yeah, go to it. And uh, any pieces you're working on for the New York Times, New Yorker, or any other periodicals we can look forward to, to reading? Uh, well, yeah, I'm actually working on an essay about a very unusual Valentine's Day date that my girlfriend and I had last year, in which we pretended to be strangers meeting at a bar, um, which I bo I'm, I'm hopeful I will get printed around the same time the book comes out. Excellent. Well, Timothy, Tim, thank you for taking the time out to be on the program. I appreciate it. Well, of course. It's been fun. Yeah, a lot of fun. Thanks for having me on the show. Oh, uh, my pleasure, and we look forward to the book. Take care of yourself. All right. Hope we'll have Bloody Marys again soon. Oh, that'd be awesome. Bye. Bye. Attention, citizens of the state of California. 
Sylvia's Cuisine For an Irish woman of her generation and social class, my mother was a good cook. She was raised in the Great Depression, where she learned the frugal habit of drying out tea bags for reuse, which she followed to the end of her life. She was from a working-class family with a tiny house mortgaged during the Depression and a house painter father who, if not caught early Friday afternoon, would drink his paycheck. Her long-suffering mother, picture Aunt Em without the three quirky farmhands and with a less dependable Uncle Henry, was, according to my mother, a good baker, and she passed down recipes on yellowing notepaper to my mother. My mother cooked the staples, Irish stew and meatloaf and roast beef, always well done. In restaurants later in life, my mother made a point of ordering her meat crisp and bloodless and her fillet of sole dry. She excelled at mashed potatoes, of course, and concocted a very good gravy. Fresh vegetables, corn on the cob in the summer, for example, sometimes, but canned vegetables for the most part, scrambled eggs for breakfast, and grilled cheese and tomato soup for lunch. Chicken procured from the beefy, always angry grocer a few blocks from the house, and now and then good sausage from the German butcher on Cedar Avenue. This was long before consumers thought of free-range chickens or organic vegetables. Chickens were chickens, seen alive primarily on television, perhaps in an episode of Green Acres, and vegetables, if not grown in our own garden, and ours weren't, came in cans labeled Del Monte, or Green Giant. We weren't one of those old-time Italian families in a neighboring borough, an exotic enclave of Calabres and Sicilians with deep ties to the old country. They had lush gardens and unsuspecting rabbits fattening in a coop in the backyard. No, we were modern Americans. Our livestock came from the aisles of the neighboring A.M.P., and sometimes we descended to Swanson turkey dinners with cardboard stuffing and a too-sweet, crunchy apple betty for dessert. And my mother wasn't a devotee of the galloping gourmet, the Australian sot syndicated on daytime television, or Julia Child, never watched on the rarefied and fairly new PBS. No coq en vain, a beef bonion, coming out of my mother's kitchen. Desserts were one of her specialties. Pies from scratch, before Duncan Hines provided a time-saving shortcut. Lemon meringue, and apple, and coconut custard. Spice cakes and brownies, and somewhat less enticing holiday fruitcake from one of her mother's fading recipes. My favorite dessert was a graham cracker and chocolate pudding com combination. I'd make a special request. My mother would whip up a batch, and I'd kill off as many as I could until the refrigerated remains hardened and an unpleasant skin formed over the pudding part. Her own favorite dish was her spaghetti sauce. She had married an Italian 
whose father kept a goat, and whose brother made Dago red in his basement. Real Italians. But he died young, and she was estranged from most of her in-laws for years. So she never had Italian sisters-in-law hovering over her sauce pot, critiquing her in the old tongue, and perhaps tweaking her recipe. One of her sisters, Aunt Teresa, envied her sauce, but couldn't match it. Her other sister, my Aunt Jewel, wasn't much of a cook, and didn't seem to care too much about her lack of skills. She was happy just eating. But the sauce fueled an old rivalry between my mother and my Aunt Teresa, going back to childhood, and a murky incident involving a porcelain doll, a Christmas gift to my mother. Apparently, Teresa absconded with and broke the doll, and my mother never forgave her. It was the beginning of a lopsided and sad rivalry that lasted all their lives. My mother endured a long widowhood and a life scrimping on Social Security, and Aunt Teresa had a fairly comfortable existence and a long marriage with my quiet and dependable Uncle John. But my mother had her sauce. Her regular mode was self-deprecating. However, she was proud of her sauce and her perfectly round meatballs. Spaghetti night was an occasion. We bought Italian bread from the surly grocer, and we feasted. And she was not shy about sharing with newcomers to the family or to strangers, like the down-on-his-luck encyclopedia salesman who showed up at her door one day hawking a set of Comptons. She made her sauce for years, until she didn't. The last meal she made for me in the kitchenette of her subsidized senior citizen apartment was a plate of scrambled eggs. The eggs were expired, and there were shells in the mix. She was slipping, as she would say. She hovered over me with an expectant look on her face. I couldn't finish them, and she didn't look offended or surprised. I tossed them in the garbage, hoping I wasn't poisoned. My mother admitted that the eggs might have been a bit old, and then apologized with a self-mocking laugh. That's okay, Mom, I said, remembering her spice cake and her sauce and her perfectly round meatballs and the graham crackers with chocolate pudding. Can I? 
Elegant, sensitive on the nape of your neck, and I kiss there again and again as my vigor, as strong as the morning bird song and their dance from tree to bush, and then my soft, strong hands embrace your glorious tush until we are so together as we know for those passionate animal elegant moments we found ourselves and each other take the ribbon from your hair shake it loose and let it fall laying soft upon my skin like the shadows on the wall Come and lay down by my side Till the early morning light All I'm taking is your time Help me make it through the night I don't care what's right or wrong I don't try to understand let the devil take tomorrow Lord, tonight I need a friend Yesterday is dead and gone And tomorrow's out of sight And it's so sad to be alone Help me make it through the night 
Yes, it's so sad to be alone Help me make it through the night <laughs> Yeah Christopherson's a real poet, isn't he? And there you have it, episode 236 of Troubadours and Rock on Tours, with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode possible. First and foremost, U.S. essayist, one of our finest, Timothy Kreider. Thank you so much for talking with us. And we look forward to your new book. I wrote this book because I love you is the title, and it's due out on... Valentine's Day. I also like to thank another wonderful essayist, our very own Dr. Michael Pavis, our resident essayist and associate producer, also known as Uncle Cesare. I'd like to thank these musical artists as well. Domenico Monduño, Ben Gibbard, Butch Walker, Billy Holiday, Harry Dean Stanton, Brentford Marsalis, and Terence Blanchard, too. Until next week, enjoy this one. Thanks for listening.